0: The situation is there's huge amounts of value in institutions and there's a new technology that allows value to be transacted and moved and managed in a superior way because it's like going from paper to digital.
1: Get ready to jumpstart your week with the FCAT Crypto Brief, brought to you by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Join me, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, alongside our team of experts, Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, the DeFi Engineering Lead from Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Associate with Avon Ventures. Every week, we roll up our sleeves and delve into the hottest topics, from blockchain breakthroughs to DeFi revolutions and market happenings. We promise to go deeper than the headlines and deliver insights you can't get just anywhere. Be sure to hit the subscribe button for your weekly dose of crypto commentary. Quick disclaimer, we're here for education, not investment advice. Views expressed are of the hosts, not Fidelity or its affiliates. Crypto's a wild space, highly volatile, can become a liquid at any time, and is strictly for those with a high risk tolerance. Buckle up, enjoy the ride, and let's dive into what's been happening recently.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the FCAT Crypto Brief. My name's Jack Newrider. Today, myself and Parth Gargava are going to be the hosts. Uh Jason and Ryan are off this week, and we're lucky enough to be joined uh, by the co-founder of Chainlink, Sergey Nazarov. Sergey, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have this conversation.
0: Great. Great to be here. Excited to be chatting with you. Thanks for having me.
2: Awesome. So maybe we could just level set um, to begin what role does Chainlink play in the crypto space to become a really important application and and part of DeFi and and crypto as a whole? Why did you build it in the first place and what role does it play in the crypto space?
0: Sure, so Chainlink came out of um, our experience building smart contracts um, as far back as, I guess you could say 2014 and even a year or two before that, uh, basically before Ethereum existed. And this was happening on something called smartcontract.com. And in the process of building smart contracts, the the idea of smart contracts at that time was not necessarily focused on tokenization. Tokenization has been the main trend associated with smart contracts, let's say for the past six, seven, eight years. But when when we started building smart contracts, um, our concept of them was that they were kind of automation. And the word smart always suggested connection, always suggested a connection to other things. Um, But as we started building smart contracts, we realized that blockchains are not actually able to connect to anything. They're not able to connect to other blockchains. They're not able to connect to a data source. Blockchains are not even aware of what time it is. So blockchains are great transactional mechanisms, great kind of public open databases with, with some amount of computational capability. And they're, they're very useful for creating shared global records and comp- computations around those shared global records. But in the process of building smart contracts, we actually built the first oracles. And oracles are these systems that create connectivity. Um, Oracle networks, which is what, what Chainlink invented, is the ability to create connectivity in a validated, consensus-driven way. So blockchains use consensus To generate blocks of transactions and to secure those transactions in a way that they are immutable, can't be modified, uh, can't be gamed, are secure, basically deterministic. That consensus, the method of arriving at consensus about something, can actually be applied to other things. Market data, weather data, connections between chains, other computations that blockchains don't do but need. And so that's what Oracle networks do. Oracle networks are the decentralized version of oracles um, or, or or an oracle. An oracle in and of itself is almost a kind of connection point or middleware that allows a system to connect or know about other systems. And oracle networks are the decentralized versions of an oracle. So this is what, what Chainlink fundamentally invented. And the reason it, it was invented is because we saw that blockchains had this very high standard for reliability and deterministic uh, outcomes and guaranteed outcomes, like guaranteeing that the computation works the same way each time. And if you connect a system that is based on that guarantee to another system that doesn't have that guarantee, then the average of the system you've now made is lower, right? The average reliability of the system is lower. And the whole point of smart contracts is that they're extremely reliable and they're extremely resistant to manipulation or downtime or any set of problems. And so Oracle networks were made to solve the problem of how to, how do all the other things in the world, all the data, all the connections, all the commands and the signatures and all the things from outside of blockchains, how do those things be get made as reliable as blockchains so that blockchains can use them to make more advanced applications such as DeFi? Um, so so the initial work was just us building smart contracts, and we initially didn't even differentiate the Oracle part from the blockchain part because at that point, smart contracts in the Ethereum sense didn't exist. They existed in a different sense. But then once Ethereum appeared, you had this separation of contract code into Ethereum and contract platforms on the EVM. And then you had this empty space of um, all the other things being made reliable, all the data, all the connectivity, all the backend commands. And that's the part of the stack, of the decentralized stack, that we decided to go after and make the best global open source standard for um, because we knew from from the experience we had building smart contracts that it was an absolutely critical piece of infrastructure that smart contracts needed to do more advanced use cases like DeFi.
3: So, Sergey, uh, in the last few years, Chainlink has almost been the has almost been synonymous for the oracle network right so it, it, i i believe it powers close to 65% of defi applications but i want to take you back to 2018 uh how did you find product market fit for chainlink in 2018 before defi before all this all the on-chain activity that we have now
0: so chainlink invented the oracle network and then and then it went on production in yeah i think about 2018 and Going on production meant that there was now ch- data on chain. There was now market data on chain. And from the people that know how to make financial products, they would know that financial products are basically financial conditions encoded in some code. That code could be in a Web2 backend or a Web3 smart contract, but it's basically contractual conditions about how the financial product works written in code. And then it's market data that tells the code what happened that tells the code what is the yield i should give the user what is the settlement price for the trade right so it's a collection of of data sets that tell the code how the financial product should resolve how how the financial product should conclude its operations to pay out the appropriate amount right so you can't make a financial product on chain without data without market data you, you that's what defi is defi is decentralized, basically on-chain financial products. So the reason that Chainlink took off um, is because it made that critical data infrastructure possible. And that's what gave birth to DeFi. So DeFi was something that was trying to come into existence by building on-chain code and then trying to connect it to various pieces of data. And the building of on-chain code was solved by Ethereum successfully, right? Ethereum gave you solidity, it Actually, started with a few other languages that died out and ended up you know with Solidity as the main one. But um so you 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 basically have the way to write on-chain code with Ethereum. And people were trying to solve the Oracle problem as a development team. So they were sitting there and trying to make their own Oracle, but there's a difference between building an application and building infrastructure. And so what, what we did was we decided to invent Oracle networks and apply them initially. So the initial application of Oracle networks was to this market data problem. And the successful application of Oracle Networks to that market data problem created the final kind of piece, the final input into those DeFi contracts that allowed them to take off. So when when Oracle Networks launched, DeFi was, I think, a sub-100 million um, industry. And then in a number of years, it grew to, to an over 200 billion industry, $200 billion dollar in an in, in AUM or value secured industry. Uh and the you know the vast majority of that was powered by Chainlink and is still powered by, by Chainlink. So that's really the pattern that Chainlink is consistently trying to to reinvent and see happen again. So for example, if you want DeFi that banks can participate in, you'll need identity data. So Chainlink has a part of the system called Deco that can verify identity data while keeping it private and allowing the identity data to be used for bank and asset manager transactions to happen with DeFi protocols. So that's another example of another piece of data that could kick off another kind of massive rise in DeFi adoption. Then Chainlink has other parts that once that infrastructure appears, it can lead to something taking off. Like during the NFT boom, Chainlink provided um, the most widely used source of, of random numbers on chain to generate NFTs and so on. So that's really what the Chainlink protocol right now, I, I think is is primarily doing is generating the critical infrastructure that allows entirely new smart contracts like DeFi to come into existence. Um, because with without the Chainlink Oracle network providing it the data, it wouldn't exist. It wouldn't grow into what it is today because it wouldn't have the necessary data or the necessary security to um, basically to function.
2: That's super interesting that's a little bit of like sort of history and past and how we've gotten through to today with Chainlink. I I know one of the big narratives uh, amongst TradFi, we're seeing all these different sort of tokenization proof of concepts starting to take place from TradFi institutions. Tokenization, I mean, some think is is slated to potentially reformat uh, the global financial system. How do you think this transition to tokenized assets could potentially evolve and then obviously specific to to chainlink what role would chainlink play in realizing sort of the full capabilities of tokenization
0: tradfi institutions big asset managers big banks have a deep connection with the real world right they have all kinds of assets that they control that are already real-world assets, real estate assets, carbon credit assets, equity assets, commodity assets, all kinds of assets. And then you also have a new infrastructure for value, right? Those assets represent value, all the world's value, actually trillions and trillions of dollars in value. And now you have a new infrastructure, the blockchain and Oracle networks and smart contracts that allows people to represent value in a very reliable form, in a way that it can move across systems efficiently and securely and reliably and in a way where it doesn't break and you don't have big uh, information asymmetries. So, so that's kind of the situation, right? The situation is there's huge amounts of value in institutions, and there's a new technology that allows value to be transacted and moved and managed in a superior way, because it's like going from paper to digital right going from paper to digital is superior because digital transactions over the internet are superior to paper transactions that happen by sending pieces of paper and blockchain transactions are superior to digital transactions you know to the same order of magnitude or, or maybe even more right so that's that's the situation if if that's the situation we're in then the the obvious set of next steps is to take all of the value in all of these financial institutions and turn them into this new format right, to take them just like they went from being on paper to being on digital to being on the internet. Now they're going to go from being on just digital to basically reliable digital. That's what blockchains are. Digital, in a certain sense, is unreliable. It could There could be mistakes. You could lose value. There's all kinds of information that isn't clear. People don't trust the records. There's all these huge problems. And there's all this inability for people to transact efficiently. Blockchains are basically reliable digital, right? So, so that's kind of the situation we're in. In that situation, to tokenize all those real-world assets, you require data because the, the tokenized assets need to be proven about what condition they're in. So you need proof about what's going on with the asset. Is the gold in the vault? Yes, the gold is in the vault. Then the gold coin is backed by gold. That's kind of the new world that, that we're going towards, I think, with all assets, right? Is is this asset in existence? It is. Is it still worth what it was worth today? Do I know that on a second-by-second second basis? Or do I have to wait for an annual audit by a human being, right? So, so the old world is, let's do an annual audit and hope the human beings get it right. The new world is, every single second, I know that the gold bar is there or every single second, I know that the solar panel field is producing electricity. So the revenue from the electricity is going to go to me if I own a tokenized version of the solar panel field. And I I don't need to wait or rely on a person to make sure that that token is working correctly because the token basically hard coded the conditions and the systems To guarantee that it works correctly because the systems force it to work correctly, right? Without the involvement of people doing audits or managing things or things like that. So almost all of the real world asset tokenization will end up needing oracles in in a number of ways. Firstly, very basic information about the asset will need to go to the contract consistently. Secondly, you'll need identity data attached to the real world asset token or the digital asset in order for it to be able to be sent to counterparties. Because with these types of assets, you need um, identity data to comply with the ability to even receive the asset. So if, if you don't get, if, if you don't clarify for me who you are and you hold the asset, I can't actually accept the asset from you in the traditional capital market sense where there is these hundreds of trillions of dollars in assets. So the first one is data, the second one is identity. The third one is more advanced data like proof of reserves. So proof of reserves and the ability to consistently prove things about the asset as the world changes. Um, and then, the, And then the final thing will really be cross chain and the ability for Oracle networks to securely and reliably connect all the different chains together into one internet of contracts. And, and that's what CCIP does. CCIP is like the TCP/IP of blockchains. So it creates a single internet of contracts out of all the different blockchain technologies out there. And that allows the real world asset that you make on one bank chain to be purchasable from another bank chain and then transferable through a third custody chain and then resellable to a fourth bank chain and so on and so on. So it basically creates a kind of unified liquidity across all the different chains, and we are now in a world where there's going to be thousands of different chains across thousands of different institutions that all have siloed liquidity that needs to connect. So, Oracle networks are a critical infrastructure for real-world assets, just like they are a critical infrastructure for DeFi. And, and my view, actually is that after the real-world asset tokenization boom happens, you'll have a kind of regulated DeFi boom because all of those tokenized assets will need to go into some system to to get yield. So the first, um, the first stage of this was custody, basic custody of various assets like Bitcoin. We're kind of in the middle stages of that with things like the Bitcoin ETF. Then you're in the second stage where... People are going to tokenize other assets. They're not just going to custody existing assets. They're going to be involved in tokenizing other assets. And then there is um, the third stage where all those tokenized assets need to go into protocols. They need to go into DeFi protocols and those DeFi protocols will need to comply in order to to provide yield. And so that's where identity data and all those pieces of data will become very important. Um, But Oracle networks have a role to play in, in all three stages of that, everything from the initial data to the identity data to the cross-chain connectivity.
3: Sergey, my, my favorite phrase was when you said, uh, go from paper to digital to reliable digital. So that's a key takeaway for me, which I think I'm gonna use more. But I, I wanna kind of dig deeper into stage two, which you just spoke about. So if you are a financial institution, which is creating a tokenized fund, how can Chainlink's services be plugged in? Can you walk us through the steps on, on what this process could look like.
0: I'll walk you through the steps. If someone is creating a tokenized fund, um, they're, they're gonna have to make some decisions around what that tokenized fund is composed of. And that's gonna lead them to wonder what are the assets that are on chain that I can put into a tokenized fund. One way to do that is to have a tokenized fund about one thing where the way that tokenized fund appears is to just have one asset about one thing and that's what the tokenized fund is about. That That's probably where a lot of things will begin because it's pretty simple to do. You have one asset type, it, it goes into a fund and, and there it is, right? So that's 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 kind of an early simple starting point. From there though, I think we'll expand pretty rapidly into funds that have a multitude of different assets that have a kind of mix of risk and returns within that fund structure, which is generally what funds do. That that's when you're going to reach the question of the variety of collateral, the variety of assets that you can that you can put in that fund. So let's say you wanted to make a fund about carbon credits. Can you put a fund? uh, Can you make a fund with two types of carbon credits or maybe 10 types of carbon credits? And the more on chain assets go um, on various chains, the more variety and the more kind of optimization of risk and reward you can do in a fund. Now, the the real challenge with that will be the fact that the real world assets go live on different chains. So there will be a multitude of different chains, some of them run by fintechs, some of them run by banks, some of them run by asset managers, where different, basically, let's use carbon credits, different carbon credit tokens will appear. Now, the best way to make a tokenized fund would be to have a connection to all of those places where all of those different carbon credits came into existence and be able to pull all of them into your tokenized fund structure on your own chain, right? That's the ideal world. The ideal world is all the variety of tokenized assets that exist on all the different chains across the entire blockchain ecosystem, whether that's public chains or private chains, whether that's chains in Asia under the, in Asia regulatory regime, or Europe under our European regulatory regime, all those different assets can be connected to and pulled by you, the the, token, the fund token, tokenization creator, into your tokenized fund. So that's the kind of variety that I think uh, internet of contracts, cross-chain connected world will, will need. And then for that fund, you're gonna need all kinds of pieces of data. You're gonna need um, identity data for some things. You're gonna need to verify the identity of purchasers to allow them to purchase the fund from their from their systems. You're going to need proof of reserves for some of the assets because that's going to be the condition under which the fund even accepts the asset is that it uses proof of reserves. Otherwise, it won't use like, would you rather have a gold coin where you find out every year if the gold is there or you find out every second if the gold is there? Everyone, I think, would rather have a gold coin where every single second they know the gold is there and they don't have to wait every year to see if the gold is is in the vault or not. Right. So proof of reserves will be a key piece of data for, I think, actually inclusion of different real-world assets into, into tokenized funds frameworks. And then you're also going to need um, probably daily pieces of data around maintaining the fund. So, you know, doing things like mark-to-market, market, NAV, all these types of operations to value the fund. That's uh, at least a daily piece of data that needs to go on-chain for all of the relevant fund operation activities to happen. So, firstly, all the different RWAs, digital assets, are gonna be generated using the help of oracles and blockchains working together. Then they're all gonna be moved into one place, into one fund structure contract through a cross-chain system powered by Oracle networks on on something like CCIP. Then you're gonna have a bunch of additional data that needs to be fed into those fund structures to allow them to operate properly, and all the real-world assets that are in the fund structures will continue to need to give their own respective pieces of data to prove their quality as an asset to that fund. And, and I think where we'll end up is a very high degree of mass personalization, where people can show up and say, I believe in municipal bonds in Asia, carbon credits, and you know some inflation hedging commodity. Make me a fund that does that right? Make me a, a fund that that performs the function of exposing me to Asia, exposing me to an inflation hedge, and exposing me to the carbon credits trend. That's kind of the, the pattern that I want to put value into. And while that would have historically taken months to generate, and you would have needed huge amount of consumer demand to justify the internal back office and middle office and legal and other work for a fund like that to come into existence— Now, all of that work will happen through code and systems like CCIP will detect all the different assets, pull them together into a fund tokenization contract, feed all the relevant data. And and so you'll probably be able to make these very advanced tokenized funds in a matter of minutes uh, because all the building blocks to compose them and all the infrastructure to connect all those building blocks in the form of CCIP, Chainlink data feeds, Chainlink identity services, Chainlink compute services, all those building blocks will kind of facilitate that um, connection and that movement and that combination of all those other real-world assets into that tokenized fund. So so that's the world I think we'll end up with when everything is really, really mature. Um, right now, we're in the early stages of tokenized funds. Yeah, that makes me
2: think of one of the themes that we talk about a lot, which is blockchain interoperability. Um, if you have all of these different, financial entities building tokenized assets or funds on chain, but they're doing it on different chains. Um, e- you run into things being built potentially in silos and liquidity being fragmented across various blockchain networks. Is this why you think blockchain interoperability is so important?
0: Yeah, so so blockchain interoperability is is a critical building block for how the capital markets will interact with each other and how they will eventually interact with public chains. And and those are the the two dimensions of the problem. So the first dimension of the problem is these liquidity islands, these kind of silos of liquidity that exist when every bank or asset manager makes its own chain, right? And they are all making their own chains. They're launching their own chains. They're gonna continue launching their own chains. The cost and effort to launch chains is gonna continue to go down. So it's gonna become cheaper and easier to make chains Just like, you know, entities have thousands of databases, I think entities will end up having thousands of chains that are all interoperating with each other in order to scalably do what they need to do, just like there's a huge amount of databases interoperating with each other to do what they need to do, right? That's that's kind of the analogy in which I see this now. And all of those different chains will need to interact with each other to create this internet of contracts, right? So In the early days of the internet, you did have different protocols, different databases, different technologies that didn't talk to each other. And you had siloed information because the internet is about information technology, right? And then you had the appearance of protocols like TCPIP and and others, which basically unified the entire um, information and technology landscape of the early internet into the internet, right? The internet, is not you and me using the same database technology. And the internet is not you and me using always the same programming language. The internet is everyone using a variety of programming languages and a variety of database technologies that are all interconnected to create a shareable information resource, basically. So what what CCIP does is the same thing that TCPIP did for the internet. It unifies all of the different kind of silos of contracts, silos of value into a single internet of value, internet of contracts. And the very big benefit for capital markets is that if you make a real world asset and you launch that real world asset on blockchain A, then blockchain A doesn't have all the value that would purchase your asset. Your market is not on blockchain A. Your, Your market is on blockchain B, C, D, E, F, G. It's on all these other places all these other chains where people have stable coins, people have tokenized deposits, people have their gold coins. You want them to come and exchange all of that for your real-world asset that you just made. And no matter how good your real-world asset is, if you're not connected to their chain, they won't be able to exchange that, right? So your market for your real-world asset, for your tokenized fund, for your digital asset thing as a bank, as an asset manager will only be as large as the counterparties you connect to. It'll only be as large as the chains that are connected to your chain where you house your assets. So so this is kind of a fundamental problem in the capital markets. We've been working on this problem for years. We're collaborating on it with many large um, financial market infrastructures like SWIFT, um, various uh, large CSDs, big, big top banks, large leading asset managers, because every rec- everyone recognizes there needs to be a single global open source standard, like TCPIP, but for blockchains. And then there's the second dimension of this problem, which is how does all of that value that gets interconnected into capital markets interface with public chains? And CCIP is now getting adopted in public chains because of its security guarantees, basically, and because of its other, other key features. And so now you you will have these two parallel worlds that can't really connect and interface with each other for legal reasons, but they will both be on the same set of transactional standards. They'll be on the same set of data standards to settle for price. They'll be on the same set of um, computational standards to make the transactions move along. And they'll be on the same set of transactional standards for value and data to move between chains. And then when the legal barrier between these two worlds goes down, and it's gradually going down because regulators and others are creating clarity, then the interaction between the public chain uh, chains and the private chain bank chains on a single global um, connectivity layer will create the Internet of Contracts. And that Internet of Contracts will be driven by data, flowing over it in order to make transactions work, just like DeFi needs data to work and real-world assets need data to work and identity is there for, for transactions to happen. And it'll also be there to move the, to, to actually move the value and the tokens between all these chains. But it'll be a single internet of contracts. It, it won't be, um, I have my group of chains here and you have your group of chains there eventually people won't even wonder what chains people are on, just like people don't wonder what database technologies their counterparty uses, right? Like if you're at bank A and bank B, nobody's talking to each other about what database they use. No, nobody knows what database the other bank uses, and it's not important because whatever database they use, they can communicate over TCP IP and do a transaction. So all of these questions of like, what blockchain are you on? What blockchain am I on? with with the right connectivity and the right synchronization of data will go away. And then everyone will just move on to do transactions as quickly um, and with the, the most value and volume as possible in, in a way that's compliant with, with with their legal requirements, which is another thing that Chainlink is built to do. It's meant to allow transactions to happen both from a technical point of view of moving the value and from a data point of view of Providing identity, providing price, all the other things that are needed for the transaction to work.
3: That's that's really helpful, Sergey. Um, so I, I almost visualize these liquidity islands, which kind of talk to each other, which are connected with each other. And you're also moving value. How do you and Chainlink think about security or cross-chain security in general?
0: So there's five levels of cross-chain security. Um, basically, There's a lot of terminology that doesn't always relate back to how systems actually work, in my experience. So, for example, there's the term decentralized, often used for various bridge technologies. And when you actually look at some of the bridge hacks and the bridge technologies, it often comes down to what we consider to be the first two levels of cross-chain security. The first level of cross-chain security is one person with one server has one key. And all you need to do is compromise that one person or that one server, or that one key, and that's it. And the whole system breaks. That's level one. That's the lowest level of of security. That's some bridge hacks. Level two is where you have multiple servers. So at least there's multiple servers, but it's all controlled by one person with one key. So now you can compromise a couple of servers, but all you really have to do is compromise one person or one key, and that's it. That's the majority of the recent hacks is there's a claim of decentralization, of reliability, of all these things. But the reality is that the system is very fragile and that's why you see these very large hacks. The third level is when you actually have multiple separate servers with multiple keys, ideally held by by multiple people, right? So in this world, you have what would be known as one network, you have a single network. The, The problem with the single network model is that it doesn't necessarily scale, and making a single network really hard and insecure is very, very hard. Few people know how to do it. Chainlink um, started as a single network many years ago, over four years ago, right? So that's, that's level three. Level four is actually when you have multiple networks. So it's for every bridge, for everything, you can make a separate network. You're not, you're not jumbling all of the activity into a single place, You're separating out into separate networks that can be responsible for their separate security. That's what Chainlink became very quickly, also over four years ago. And there's now over a thousand, there's been over a thousand um, Oracle networks, Chainlink Oracle networks on production. And if you include all the staging and testing and other networks, it's thousands of networks. So the, the thing that Chainlink really does is it allows you to create networks. It's not about a single network that we're going to just going to stuff everything into. And it's not a server, two servers controlled by God knows who, God knows how. It's a very large collection of separate networks and the ability to generate more networks on demand to do specific security and data tasks. And that brings us to the fifth level. The fifth level is where Chainlink is for cross-chain with no other bridges at where you have multiple networks coming together to make a single bridge. So every CCIP bridge is actually three Oracle networks working together. It's a committing network, it's an executing network, and it's a risk management network, all working together to validate different risks in different parts of the transaction in a separate way. And the reason that Chainlink can make this happen is because the Chainlink system is not about making a single network. It's about a, the ability and a framework to generate hundreds or and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of separate Oracle networks that are secure and able to interact with each other. One of them provides data. Another one provides identity. Another one provides computation. Three of them get together to make a bridge and heavily validate the bridge and heavily validate the risks. One of the great benefits of this is that in CCIP, you have something called the risk management network where you can actually encode various policies. So m- many of the bridge hacks happen basically because there's no way to manage risk. There's no way to say, yeah, let me send 600 million over there without knowing what that is. R- the risk management network is a place where you can encode basic and, and even more advanced policies around the need for identity, identity, the need to, to to have limits to what can be sent to unknown places, the need to basically control how data is used to validate things. Like, for example, this gold coin trying to be sent to me doesn't have a proof of reserves. We were not going to accept it because it doesn't meet our standards for proving that the gold is there, right? So there, there needs to be not only a transactional kind of technology to allow value and, and information to move across chains, But there also needs to be a layer where you can encode policies and risks so that the system can adapt to those risks. And there's a separate Oracle network in each CCIP bridge just for that. And the reason Chainlink can do that is because Chainlink can generate separate networks for things like that, whereas pretty much all other bridge technologies are either one really big thing that everything's trying to get stuffed in there or it's at the level uh, one and two security level, which which means it's a, it's a bridge hack waiting to happen.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Clearly something uh, you've thought quite a bit about. I think as we maybe start to wrap here, I'll, I'll ask one final question uh, to leave us off. And that's, we talked a lot about, uh, Chainlink and its early days and how you found product market fit. And then we got into you know, tokenization and cross-chain interoperability. Ultimately, what do you think the the ultimate vision is uh, for Chainlink here as we continue to move forward?
0: So the ultimate vision for, for Chainlink is to be a decentralized computing marketplace where developers can show up and request any data, any off-chain computation, any connection, To really any system that could be an existing system or a cross-chain system, and to receive that data, off-chain computation, or connection in a trust-minimized way. So in a way where it was computed using Oracle networks and is provably secure, provably decentralized, provably reliable enough to control value, and then giving those developers um, and the people making all the smart contracts the ability to modify what level of security they want. So as the value in smart contracts grows, the need for security grows. And so the budget for security grows because there's a big difference between securing a million dollars or a billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars. And if you're securing a million dollars, you only need a certain amount of nodes and a certain amount of security features. And that's a certain cost. If you're securing a billion, that's another set of features, another set of nodes, another set of costs. If you're securing a hundred billion, that's completely different set of nodes, set of features, set of costs. It's like a whole different story. Basically, more nodes, more features, more security-related costs. Because that value is more attractive to get manipulated for someone to do something with it. So the fundamental goal of Chainlink is to create a market where all off-chain decentralized computation can be delivered for data, compute, connectivity purposes to accelerate what smart contracts do and to allow them to be connected to each other in ways that create this internet of contracts. That's the the fundamental long-term kind of, in my opinion, goal of the system that's being built by a lot of different teams and the community and banks and together with like a huge n- number of folks now. And I think if you get to a world like that where a smart contract can say, I need this piece of data, I need that about identity, I need a connection to these three other contracts, I need to be connected to SWIFT for something, I need to be connected to a CSD for something else to get approval because, you know, I'm doing this in this jurisdiction. If you can compose all of that in a number of minutes because all of those components exist and clearly represent what they are and, and have a clear price and have a clear security guarantee that's measurable, then instead of taking months to make financial products instead of taking months to do transactions that are complex. They can happen in minutes to seconds, basically as quickly as smart contract code can run to collect all the different building blocks, all the different data oracles and all the different identity oracles and all the different other contracts and other chains with the help of the cross-chain oracles. And so then you can basically build financial products and systems for everything, for insurance, for gaming, for the financial system, in minutes instead of months or years. And and that really, for me, is the true long-term vision of smart contracts. It's not just tokenization, just like email is not just the vision for the internet. The real vision for the internet is all information technology, all information interacting with all the other information in a useful, easy to compose, secure, efficient way. That's what the internet is. That's what we need to get the internet of value, the internet of contracts, smart contracts too. Is that just like it takes you a week to build a web application, it should take you a week to build a fully featured kind of thing that you can release as um a smart contract and advanced digital asset. Uh that's that's really what uh what what we're going towards.
2: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting grand vision. Um I think that just about wraps us here. I know I really enjoyed this conversation. Definitely learned a lot. And hopefully everybody listening uh, has some things to think about and take away from this. Sergey, thank you so much for joining us this week. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Crypto as an asset
4: class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any Fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country. Where such distribution would or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2024 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.